Hi, I'm Tim Bowes. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Now, uh, this week, uh, I'm delighted to say we've got Nathan Bennett joining us in a minute from Renewable UK. And what I want to look at is kind of where we are in terms of progress. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast over the last year or so, been reading Future Net Zero, you'll know that in a way you could say the report card for the UK is lots of good ambition, mm, could do better in terms of application. So have we put in enough to make sure we're doing the things we need to do? Lots of criticism, not just from parliamentary committees, but many voices in industry, many voices from the environment say we should do more faster. But are we really trying to move things in a faster way? In terms of kind of vision, it sounds great, but there's the reality, jobs, investment, moving things forward when we're just recovering from the pandemic, the issue with the war in Ukraine. So today I'm going to explore uh, with Nathan the kind of state of play of where we are in terms of our progress to net zero. And Nathan, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I uh, hope you're well. Yeah, I am. Thank you very much. The sun's shining for the first time in weeks, so is, I've got a yeah. smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, did, someone did say to me, what's all this climate change? It's flipping freezing. <laughs> well, you should go to India and they'll tell you something about it. <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, now, you're head of um, public affairs, is that right? That's right, yeah. So kind of lead on government relations and have done for the last five years for the for the renewable sector. What is uh, Renewable UK? If you could just let our audience know, probably not across exactly what, what the, the body is. Yeah, so we're the Trade Association for Clean Energy. Um, we're non-for-profit. Um, I guess we're most notable for leading kind of the offshore wind sector deal. Um, so we represent offshore wind developers and, and marine energy developers. I think we're quite unique in that actually the majority of our members operate within the supply chain, not within the developers themselves. But we've grown in recent years as the kind of UK steps towards decarbonisation have grown. So increasingly now we have members working in green hydrogen, we have members working in battery storage, we have members kind of leading the, the flexible grid system of the future. So we're expanding and deepening, but that's that's us in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, we spoke to Nina from the REA and obviously the REA sort of has slightly repositioned itself as uh, renewable energy and, and sort of clean technologies and you were let's be honest you were really mainly seen as you've said as kind of voice for the wind industry um are you do you see yourselves repositioned now as kind of the wider renewables uh, as you were mentioning and if so how do you make sure there's a balance because clearly with a legacy of being very much as you say working with the wind supply chain companies that would probably i would say i'm not sure influence your, your your kind of view on things well to be honest um looking forward offshore wind is going to be the backbone of our future energy system incredibly rapidly i mean by the end of the decade the yeah. vast majority of yeah. power will be from offshore wind supplemented by you know onshore wind and solar so yeah i mean we don't necessarily have solar within our membership um but i think uh, I'm quite happy. I've got enough to deal with taking on uh, wind, hydrogen, and storage. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't need that. To, let, oh, yeah, let, let that happy, go. I'm then, happy yeah. with that. Yeah, I don't need biome <laughs> or any of those types. <laughs> now, uh, it's ridiculous, but now what? Uh, two prime ministers ago, 
we had a bloke called <laughs> Boris Johnson who said very famously, I would like the UK to be the Saudi Arabia of wind by the end of the decade. Uh, now, obviously, Rishi's come in and he's a little bit more tempered in terms of his uh, sort of support for it, although clearly, you know, he is backing it. Mm. Um, let's just start with the basics of it. How good are we when it comes to wind? Because I've spoken to some many experts over the, the last year and a half have been doing this podcast. And mm. there's a general feeling that actually we've used a lot of what we knew in oil and gas to accelerate our work, particularly offshore. Perhaps we haven't done anywhere near enough as we'd like onshore. But is mm. it really that actually we've been fortuitous with that legacy industry and then the the topography and ge geography of, of these islands? Or is it that you think that it's been the one that's grown? Because in a way, as you said, the deployment is a lot quicker. Yeah, I mean, we have really nurtured our offshore wind sector, I think in a way that is genuinely world leading. I mean, we managed to get prices for the sector down to the record lows that they're at now, far before the rest of the international community. Part of that is a decision of government. You know, it was clear in, in the coalition years and even in the years previous that we were going to focus on offshore wind instead of onshore wind. Part of that, as you've alluded to, is a bit of a luck of geography. I mean, the vast majority of wind turbines on planet Earth today are fixed bottom, fixed to the seabed. And you yep. need to have water depths of 50 metres or under to do that. And we're just lucky enough to have waves of that off the coast of the east of England um, and Scotland actually for that matter so in a sense it's been a mixture of of, of luck and, and concerted government policy and I think it's true that we have been able to utilize expertise from our oil and gas sector and bring those to bear within offshore wind as well which I really hope is only going to intensify as we start to do in more and more floating offshore wind um which is undoubtedly the kind of the next shift that the whole world is going to see in terms of offshore wind tech and one that the UK could genuinely have world leadership in I think what has changed in terms of a whole picture for the sector mm -hmm. is the international perspective is that suddenly countries around the world have either upscaled their ambitions across all renewable technology, if we're honest, and to some extent, some of them have woken up and smelt the economic opportunity. And, you know, you've seen in the US through the Inflation Reduction Act yeah. and what the EU is pushing forward now, that there is a real attempt to try and lead the way and lead the the IP, in IP development for this sector to capitalize on the global market. So in some sense, actually, one of the biggest change to, to wind energy policy for the UK hasn't come from UK government, it's come from the world around us. We'll talk about policy in a moment, which is the main stay of what we're going to do in this podcast. But in terms of the technologies, um, we've got the Big Zero show on the 20th of June, and I've got Gabriel Davis from Austin probably one of your members, I'm sure, who'll be talking about, you know, floating offshore wind. And this yeah. is a really interesting thing because you look at the offshore sector and and I spoke to a, uh, an, an expert from an overall kind of uh, body in, in Europe that looks at sort of research across the world. And it can see that, as you said, the vast majority is happening here, okay? The vast, vast majority. Bits in, in China, bits in other parts of the world. Um, is this change 
to basically, from what I understand, and you're you're the expert, you know, but you know, yeah, yeah, the, you you move the wind turbines around depending because we're very lucky that we have a fortunate base with which, as you say, the topography is right, and we know where the current's coming. But actually, in places like the Pacific, places like the Atlantic, winds can change, things can move around, and the idea of this floating wind, which sits like on a buoy, from what I've seen the drawings and the the stuff. Do you think this is going to be a real game changer for offshore yeah. across the board? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just about the fact that having floating foundations means you can put your wind turbines out in, you know, deep trenches like you haven't been able to do before. Yeah. And that's yeah. like essential for countries like Japan, right? There's yeah. like nowhere on land to put your onshore. There's nowhere to put your solar. You, you're surrounded by deep trench. It's floating or nothing for those guys. But Correct. also... From an energy perspective, it's that you can put them in much more optimum areas. So actually, the most efficient wind turbine in Britain, offshore wind turbine, is the high wind floating wind farm, just because we've able to put it in one of the most kind of windy efficient areas of the uk so in the sector that has a, a load factor this kind of measure of efficiency of 57 percent, and traditionally they're usually around 40 so it's that it's it's opening up you know vast swathes of areas that we can build wind turbines and also just how much more efficiency we get from the from the generators uh, themselves that's the prize and recently the government's gone for it hasn't it it's 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 said it's opening a sort of offshore floating offshore wind manufacturing scheme uh, invested i think about 150 60 odd million into it so you could see that actually they're listening yeah well this is it i mean we were the first under boris johnson set any target for floating wind well ahead of the curve um, i'm old enough to remember when it we had a one gigawatt target by 2030 it's now five gigawatts by 2030 and that was genuinely world leading We've got this huge pipeline, like 18% of all the planned floating wind farms in the world are planned in the UK. Um, and we do, as you said, we do have these oil and gas majors who, you know, floating platforms has been their bread and butter for decades. So they mm. can see quite easily how they can bring that technology into the sector. And also some of them, if we're honest, see it as they're in. You yeah, know, if, you're BP, if you're yeah. BP, if you're Shell, there's already yeah. established companies within offshore wind. How are you going to get in there? Floating wind gives you that opportunity. So I guess what, again, what is maybe the big change to bring it back to that global competition and to give you like an idea of that is that, yeah. you know, before Joe Biden came in, there was no floating wind ambition for no, of course. the US. Yeah. And you've yeah. gone to now, they've you know outlined 50 million in R&D funding. They've got this target and pipeline of 15 gigawatts by 2035. You know, in the last year, the number of planned floating wind farms in the world has gone up from 130 to 230. And that's just, again, everyone kind of waking up and being part of this global race to to be the first to develop the tech. But it is exciting. I can't deny it. Um, and it's a big opportunity for particular parts of the UK as well, because yeah. we'd expect to build the vast majority of these up in Scotland, uh, off the East Coast particularly, and um, down off the coast of, of South Wales and the southwest of England. And particularly... And, in and that, let's, let's face it, those places need jobs. Exactly. The Hull Estuary, all of those places. There's a lot of work that you know needs to be put for 
generally have been fairly neglected areas of the last well exactly i mean i'm from the north of england and i couldn't be more proud that the you haven't, you haven't said fast or last yet mate. <laughs> right i mean <laughs> you've been I in the south not, too long mate <laughs> i may not sound it because i've been into london too long but yeah i am originally from durham and um yeah obviously like one of the all these new products that come with floating wind development are yeah. they're not just the obvious ones the foundations but it's the cables That's the really moorings yeah you're you're from durham right and durham yeah. the home of mining yeah mm. a generation ago you look at northumbria all of that for, for, you, for you know just on a personal thing here you know those areas and i've been to places like that i've been to wales i've been to loads of places where we had that the boom based on the stuff that we dug up from the ground, right? Mm. And it built in cities, uh, infrastructure, communities. And then obviously that all went and, and, and has been depreciated. Mm. Do you believe that this kind of new push for these kind of huge kind of wind power sectors, these kind of ports, free ports, the whole idea of kind of hubs of energy. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it will help? To, to bring something back to whether you call it red wall or whatever you want to call it, but the areas that generally were old energy, then into deprivation, but could be part of new energy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's not just Scotland that they're looking at that kind of transition, but the Northeast definitely as well. I mean, we've already seen it in the last few years. There's a new cables factory opening up in Blythe that they're investing 130 million in. They're investing what, 300 million in this new um, foundations factory down at, um, at Teesside. I mean, Teesside particularly because it's so lucky to have deep water port depths. Yeah. Um, it's got every opportunity to land, you know, more factories, more investment like this in the wind industry as it grows. I mean, the big, the big picture that I don't think, and you wanted some criticism, government that i don't think government fully understand is how big but how time limited the manufacturing opportunity is in the offshore wind industry why, in the wind why, industry generally why do you say that if we're going to do this there's going to be a boom of it why do you think it's time limited opportunity well so basically in order to achieve the kind of pan europe even if you just look at europe right in order to achieve the offshore wind ambitions that we need in Europe alone, we need twice as many factories building nacelles. You know, that they're the like kind of box that you see at the top of yeah, turbines. Yeah. We need four times as many factories making the base foundations, twice as many factories that we've got at the moment making the blades. All of the supply chain crunches, as in, you know, when these when the you know the issue hits the fan of of when we'd need these factories built all happen around 2027 2028 2026 so we need those investments to start happening now and so part of the reason that you know we need to respond to what's coming out of the eu is that every wind farm manufacturer is going to be making a choice within the next year and a half. Do I build my factory in Teesside or do I build it in Germany? And they're going to look for the most competitive place. Yeah. So, you know, this is why, if we're honest, why you can turn on the, the news at any given day and you'll see UK wind industry figures like me kind of pushing the government so hard. Because once that factory, that new factory is built in Germany, it's so hard to reverse engineer it into the UK. They've already built it. 
Whereas mm. if you've got a capacity gap and you need to build your factory, we need to get it in the UK first and then they'll stay here and we can build from there. Let, let's go through a few bits of policy. I mean, you, like you say, you've been in the job, I think you said five years. Flipping yeah. you've, had, you've had a few changes, <laughs> mate. Let's put it this way. But the National Infrastructure Commission, you know, delivering net zero, that report, it's, which looked at uh, planning. Mm. That's, a, that's you know this is the, who was I talking to I can't remember now it'll be on my podcast honestly the amount of people I talked about they told me that the average wind farm you're looking at a 15 year from concept to yeah, yeah. of which seven or eight of those years is planning mm. now we haven't got that kind of time but we've got to be realistic you've mm. got to look at what will it do to the environment what about the people who live nearby? What are all the issues regarding bringing the stuff on? You know what it's like. Everyone likes yep. the idea of big wind farms. No one wants them right on their doorstep. So do we need to try and fast track planning? And how do we do that without compromising our marine environment or other issues around the environment? Because there's a build. There's a build cost environmentally for all these things as well. I think part of... um. Part of it is about resourcing for those planning authorities. It won't surprise you that kind of years of cuts to local authorities and to kind of statutory consenting bodies have taken their toll. And so fundamentally, you have similar numbers of staff taking on ever-increasing workloads of loads of renewable energy developers trying to process things. So part of it, which is already happening to some extent, is just resourcing those bodies so that they can process everything. Part of it on the um, point that you were making about environmental impact is just being a lot more systemic and clear in the guidance that we have for that. At the moment, it's a bit piecemeal. It, you know, much as the sector is still young, the regulation yeah. around it is still young. So mm -hmm. developers aren't clear what kind of schemes they have to put in place to mitigate for environmental impact. And that's just things up but i'm i'm pleased to say on the planning front for offshore wind the government is really now kicking things through and kicking things into the gear we are actually starting to see movement on things i think where the big question still lies is what the government intends to do for onshore wind in england um because although you know just before Christmas, we had plenty of headlines after a, yeah, um, yeah. a push from backbenchers and I can't remember how many it was, three, four former prime ministers. Yeah. Um, the uh, the government, Rishi said, you know, we're going to end the ban on onshore wind in England. But actually, it's four months later and we still haven't seen new policy put in place. Um, it's, a, it's a funny one, isn't it? That Because, you know, I've filmed in Holland, I've filmed in other places, you know, many years ago, decades ago. And it was coming there. That's what they do there. It's used to it. We still got a problem here with that, haven't we, with onshore wind? And and, and I, you know, I'm not sort of <laughs> politically lined either way, but for me, I can empathize with the government's issue, which is that we probably would think it makes sense to have onshore wind. Uh, Nathan, no one bloody likes it. <laughs> That's <laughs> the point, do they? <laughs> do you <laughs> don't want them. I've sat near them, flipping heck, they make a noise. So the, the only problem is, is that there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that's true. <laughs> it's, mu it's much like 
there's no there's no poll I've seen. The other one that I find again to come back yeah, to, you, you to come back to me score. to come you back to to come back to me being from the north, right? Yeah, sure. I grew up in the shadow of two turbines to the east of my dad's house, one to the west. Thank you, EDF. Yeah. And um <laughs> 33, we polled, 33% of people say that they like onshore wind turbines more than they did five years ago. And I can feel that when I go back to my dad's village. And it's in part the fact that the price of them has fallen to the point that every new wind farm lowers your bills. Some companies are even offering a local electricity discount. People are are watching David Attenborough. They care about climate change. They recognise the place of onshore wind in, you know, in tackling oh, climate change you're being very positive about this <laughs> no they are i mean i don't don't get me wrong we should be honest about it the yeah. government polls show between two and four it fluctuates because there's always a margin of error percent of the public don't like wind turbines and they're yeah. going to be vocal about it and they're going to yeah. tell you if you meet them in the back of a pub or wherever <laughs> but we shouldn't we shouldn't let two percent of the population completely govern our energy policy, rise our energy bills, and stop us decarbonizing our power system in, so for you, you know, you, in you efforts. That's sure. it. It's just, it's just about yeah. government being... Also, I don't deny that I don't want to force local communities to accept onshore wind turbines. That's the problem, isn't it? You've got to take them on board with you. But you know yeah. what's interesting about that? You look at uh, Octopus Energy have this scheme where yeah. it's put your hand up for wind, yeah. where if you if you opt to have one near you and tell Octopus that you're happy with it, if they get their wind farm away, they'll offer you a local electricity discount. And literally within the first couple of days of putting that scheme, they add thousands of people put their hands up. And it's the 70 odd percent that fluctuates as well, whether it's 75, 78 or whatever percent of the public that supports yeah. onshore wind. Like there are communities out there that are that that are happy with it. And I don't see why we should continue to stand in their way right um, okay so... uh, every builder nathan's back garden is a... <laughs> <laughs> i mean to be to be honest if you uh if you ask my family they'd be happy for another winter by near them yeah. um especially if it's gonna knock 100 quid off their bills oh, i think yeah exactly i think you'd be surprised <laughs> it's one of those things isn't it the other narrative i can't stand in the sector is that Hang um on. is uh that somehow there is this kind of uh, the everyone in the south is up for decarbonisation and tackling climate change. But they everyone, don't want everyone, it everyone in the red, no, no, everyone in the red wall in the north is is not up for it. And there's literally no poll to suggest no. that. Everyone across no, the people the in the south are up for it, but we, we want it built up where you are, Nathan. That's <laughs> <what>. <laughs> well, I'm happy as long as you bring me the factories. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about a couple of other things before we go. Um, yeah, yeah. Off gem, uh, you know, the energy bill, you know. Ofgem now has, you know, the, the power to kick butt on on net zero. Um, you, as an organisation, have welcomed that, haven't you? You think it's the right thing for for Ofgem to have a, a key role in, you know, assisting the delivery of net zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, it's um, to be honest, it's it's almost just a bit of spring cleaning for government, it, as I see it. In the when the government passed the Net Zero Act, every government department pivoted to making sure it delivered net zero. The only things that weren't captured within that were kind of the arm's length bodies, so yeah. kind of regulators like Ofgem. Um, and so, really, all this is doing is getting Ofgem in line with 
everything else in government in delivering powder carbonization and beyond so um it's been a bit it's been a bit of a, a push there's you know there's um you know i think you've probably seen it's it's come through the house of lords it's not come through government but yeah. ultimately you know if you ask any uh you know energy uk you ask national grid you ask chris skidmore who obviously did the review yeah. into yeah. net zero yeah. they're all they're all pretty certain that you know this is a good course of action and i think most notably the rationale for for doing it is all about grid development i mean you probably hear this time and time again on the podcast if if you want to talk about the biggest barrier actually of course yeah it's grid it's grid yeah, time exactly. and time again so. uh rate of decarbonization how are we doing in our school report which i started the podcast for power sector, I think we're doing pretty well. If we can skewer this grid issue, um, I think in terms of a lot of the the development we need, we'll see it. There's still a bit of question marks over solar and onshore wind planning, of course. Yeah. Um, but for onshore wind, you can kind of be rest assured that actually the vast majority of that we need to see is is probably going to be in Scotland and Wales um, because that's where most of the onshore wind resources um, and those governments actually have a more amenable planning system. So um, I think you're then starting to look at these kind of uh, these questions that are all around the energy system once you look beyond grid. Yeah, so I mean, hydrogen it's, it's, deployment, long-term yeah. storage, that yeah. kind of stuff is is kind of the next step really. Your organisation clearly is about infrastructure, really, right? Building stuff. But what 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 do you see? Whether it's you, you know, as an organisation yourself, but also you know, as an individual, the role we've got. Which always, this is the thing that always gets me because I, I I can see that technology can get us out of this, but we've got to use less. We've got to change our behaviours, you know, so we don't have to build two hundred and fifty wind farms if we used. 15, 20% less energy ourselves. So when it comes to rate decarbonisation, is there something there that you think isn't all about more infrastructure and is more about reduction? Yeah, I mean, stepping onto the more uh, yeah, politically difficult issues of behaviour change, <laughs> I mean, it would certainly be, I mean, from a personal level, the, those kind of, behavior change issues are always going to be the um the more politically difficult one yeah for government i mean even in the age of johnson when we were at our most bold he even he would admit any kind of recommendations that would be around dietary changes right the yeah, last thing that you want is the sun yeah. saying i would say though that in terms of demand reduction one of the conversations you know, five years ago when I first started was, um, oh, you know, uh, for decarbonisation of heat, we're really worried how we're going to get people to um, to be keen and to permit us to go into their homes and, you know, either mm. put in insulation or, or change their heating. Actually, because of the, you know, Ukraine crisis. And the oh, yeah, the price crisis, thing. Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that turn on its head. And actually, mm. we do a lot of polling of like local. So, for example, we did some like extensive polling recently looking at um, this isn't published yet. This is almost an exclusive um, of uh, local communities. And in terms of community benefits, what 
and if a local wind farm was going to give them some money um, as part of the, you know, hosting a, a onshore wind farm, what would they want to see? And actually, the most popular thing wasn't, um, you know, spending on more social care, a reduction in their energy bill, or or transport. It was energy efficiency. I'm very surprised. Wind guys paying for the homes, yeah, which is a total change in um yeah. in mood around that. So I think uh, I don't know. There's there's always more push from the NGOs and the wider energy sector for the government to do something more ambitious, ambitious around energy efficiency. And actually, again, I think they they probably need to recognise that the public mood seems to have changed on it. Yeah. Um. Quick last couple of points. Nuclear uh, in the budget being reclassified as a form of sustainable energy. What was your industry's take on that? Because, I mean, wind was there and wind was a big up uh, for sure. But the government's looking at mass, you know, big load. And there is a nuclear on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, there is such a political divide. There's such a political divide? There's such a divide between... Um, sitting in the House of Commons and hearing about the importance of baseload and then going to any energy sector conference and hearing people proclaim that baseload is dead. Um, it, I don't know how. Uh, certainly it's taking some time for politicians to hear and keep up with what's happening within the energy sector. Um, we're not anti-nuclear as a trade association, if I'm honest. I think that's I bet, you, because... I bet some of your members are probably working across... Oh, both sectors. <laughs> I think a, a few of them would want me to say something a bit more uh, edgy than that. But um, <laughs> if I'm honest, I we're led, and I think it's reasonable to be led by organisations like the CCC and the National Infrastructure Commission, yeah. and they see a small role for nuclear within the future energy mix so yeah. i i don't know at this stage i'm not going to be so bold as to dismiss those bodies i think it's just important to remember that that role is small um you know the, the nic we're looking at one new power plant um within the next five years and ultimately you know the latest strike prices for offshore wind were 39 pounds a megawatt hour the last yeah. nuclear power plant we signed off was 92 92 yeah um yeah. it is just considerably more expensive to, you know so that is the rationale behind doing that um and you you can't really you know I mean you can't really run away hashtag, from the facts can you really hashtag money talks yeah yeah uh, exactly well, let's, let's before we go i always ask this for a lot of people um it's 2040 okay what's the world looking like now for the uk how much of my power that i plug in my laptop that i'm talking to you on now is coming from wind oh good lord um i think you're probably looking at like 70 80 percent um variable variable i I think so yeah um the real question for me is whether you've got uh an EV and how much the rest of your life is decarbonized, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, I have got an EV actually. And uh, so, I'm very yeah, jealous. The wait time is they're yeah. all part of it, isn't it? It's like whether we'll have the capacity and the load that comes. But you, you see that do you really see it to, to end with, it is the offshore wind. And obviously you want offshore as well, but the offshore wind build out, the new technology like floating, you think they will really increase the level. Yeah, exactly. And actually, if if we're honest, part of, if you look at the backbone of our industries, it will undoubtedly be offshore wind. 
um, at scale. Um, the interesting part will be floating as a component of that because, I mean, to now we've kind of discussed it in terms of it being this big industrial opportunity that the UK could lead the world in. And I want to see, you know, Geordie's out in Brazil making these things. You yeah. know, I mean, in future, like a sort of remake of Alpha Peter's Pet. The um, but but I um I actually we do need to get floating right or else we probably can't get the offshore wind build out that we need for net zero because 2050 mm-hmm. we're looking at what 120 gigawatts of offshore wind i'd say the majority of that will probably be on floating foundations even in 2035 like power decarbonization is predicated on about 15 gigawatts of floating wind at least so you know floating we should get right because we want to prosper as a and be leaders in a green tech um that helps keep everyone employed and prosperous but also kind of need to do it for our energy system as well so um that'll be something to look out for in 2040 i guess and and all the uh the geordies i don't know i, I never know people from durham consider them they're a bit too posh to be geordies yeah, absolutely no 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 absolutely where i put on a tune shirt and and uh and watch, not, watch not, us slash not, tottenham with the yeah, rest of you might have a problem with that one with uh, it being slightly funded by an, an oil state but we'll, we'll park <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, oh, but, yeah but let's, the, don't the, go into that don't yeah go. let's look into that but loads of jobs hopefully for for the areas that you come from and, and other areas you mentioned that would be a great thing anyway i don't think anyone would deny uh nathan thank you so much for joining me on the net hero podcast this week Help! Can I control energy costs for my business? How do I electrify my transport? Is cutting emissions hard? What is carbon negative? You'll get the answers to all these questions and more at the Big Zero Show on the 20th of June at the CBS Arena in Coventry. Register for your free ticket now. Big names. Big opportunities. BigZeroShow.com You've been listening to the Net Hero Podcast with Summit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things net zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to net zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.